maybe. You all must be extra caffeinated this morning. Good chatter. It's good. <laughs> all right, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump right in. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for all that you provide for us, that you provide for our, our physical well-being, our, our spiritual well-being. Um, we, and we praise you and, and thank you for, for who you are, maker and sustainer of all. That you sustain our lives, you sustain our faith, that you have hidden us with Christ, and that we are secure and protected through our union with him. We thank you and praise you for that this morning. Pray as we turn our attention to your word and think about the prayers of Paul, um, and specifically praying for, for other Christians, that you would grow our understanding, give us new um, disciplines and habits that we can implement in our lives, that we would be more, that our prayer lives would be more um, shaped by, by your word, and that we would submit our, our desires and and our thoughts about prayer to, to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to continue in our study through the book Praying with Paul. And today we're going to finish our lesson, hopefully, Lord willing, going through um, chapters 4 and 5 of the book, which we're taking together. And they're looking at how Paul prays for others, specifically other Christians. And last week we looked really at Paul's foundation for praying for others, which was that his prayers were, were rooted in, or the foundation of those prayers were his love, his love for other Christians and wanting what is best for them. So we spent a lot of time speaking about that. And the bulk of our time this morning will be spent um, looking at and analyzing 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. You can begin opening up there. We'll be there in a few minutes. But we're going to look at that prayer specifically to see how he prays for other Christians in, in that text. But we left off last time thinking through the, through the context of that prayer in verses 9 through 13. And what Carson argued is what we see in this text is, is Paul has a passion for people, a clear passion for people. Specifically, he has a passion for those in the faith, for those in, in the church. And so before we get to, to verses 9 through 13, we do have one more reason that Carson lists in the chapter of how we can see this passion for people play out in this text. And that's when we, we look at the context of this passage, we see Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians springs forth from his delight, his delight in the reports of their faith, their love, their perseverance, their, their, their strength. So his prayer springs forth from his delight, we could say, in short, from his, his thankfulness in God's work in the lives of the Thessalonians. 
and God's grace in the lives of the Thessalonians. This brings Paul delight, it brings Paul joy, which leads to, to his prayer for them. And I don't think this should surprise us if we think back to, to the previous lessons about Paul's prayers. This is a massive motivating factor for Paul. We see in this in 1 Thessalonians 3, chapter 6 through 8. We read, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remembered us kindly and longed to see us as we longed to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your, your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So Paul, just simply put, he's thankful. And he's thankful that the, the Thessalonians are growing in what Carson calls the fundamentals of the faith. Right? Growing in faith, growing in, in love. And this is this is I think what should we should be thankful for regarding um, other Christians as we think about praying for and loving other Christians that we should delight in God's work God's God's growing them in faith and love. Carson points out kind of in contrast to this how there there are some Christians who tend to be only interested in reports or news of if it's bad news or bad reports. This is kind of an intoxicating um, thing, I think, in, in our day and age. So if there is some scandal or unfaithfulness on behalf of a Christian or a church or a seminary, and that is what piques this, this certain type of person's interest. And so there's some who seem to just pounce on the, the negative report and they just become fixated on it, and enamored with it. And what inevitably happens is reports of good news just become less interesting. Good news of what is happening for Christians becomes uninteresting. And I would argue that's a very, very dangerous place to be as a Christian. And I think we, we need to guard against a heart like this. And instead, in contrast to that, we should strive to, like Paul, be excited, to be full of joy at the good reports of spiritual growth for the brothers and sisters in the faith. This is exactly what we see in Paul. It's also what we see in a place like 2 John, verse 4, where John says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. So notice again this great rejoicing at the growth of the Christian's faith. Right? This, is the, this is the Christian disposition that, that we must have. That we are a people that are thankful not just what God has done for us, what he's done for us in our lives, but we're thankful for what he is doing, what he's presently doing, what he's going to do in the lives of all believers, and specifically the believers in our, our own local churches. Right, that, that brings the Christian, or it should bring the Christian, great joy, great, great happiness, as it does Paul. And so, all of that context, right, what we talked about last week, and then this section here, leads up to the actual prayer that we see recorded for us in the chapter, in chapter 3. But it's just important 
to pause here and see, once again, that Paul's prayer springs forth from this disposition of love he has for other Christians. He delights in the report that, that these Christians are pressing on in, in the way of truth, in the Christian way. Carson writes, to put the matter at its most basic, Paul's prayer is the product of his passion for people. His unaffected fervency in prayer is not whipped up emotionalism, but it's the overflow of his love for the brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus. So I think the lesson for us in this section of the book is that if we want to improve our praying, and by that I just mean if we want to have our, our prayer lives more aligned to the prayers in Scripture, if that is to be our aim, then we must seek to strengthen our, our love for other Christians. So the big principle, I think, that, that Carson wants us to take away from this section, that I want us to take away from this section, is that as we grow in, in disciplined, self-sacrificing love for others, as that grows, so will our prayer for others. So as our love for others grow, so will our intercessory prayer grow. And I think that's 100% true and the testimony that we see in, in Scripture. So now let's... We can turn our attention to the, to the verses, verses 9 through 13. I'll just read them to, to start, and then we'll unpack them as, as Carson does in the chapter. We're in chapter 5, by the way. I know we're in kind of cross chapters 4 and 5. We're in chapter 5 for the rest of today. So I'll read, starting in verse 9. <clears throat> For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So there's obviously several ways that you could take this passage, that you could, that you could break up this prayer, but Carson chooses to stay with the theme of these two chapters, and he asks the question, how do the people of God, so in this particular case, the, the Thessalonian Christians, how do they feature in the prayer? And how is Paul thinking about the people of God as he's praying and reporting the, the prayers that he has said? And Carson highlights four themes that we can take that, that show Paul's passion for his brothers and sisters in the faith and how that passion gets expressed in, in the prayer that he prays for them. And so, number one, the first aspect of the prayer is that Paul prays with rich thankfulness for the people of God. Paul prays with rich thankfulness for the people of God. So this may seem like overkill from Paul to express his thankfulness for the Thessalonians again, given that, that 
he expressed it at the beginning of the letter and the first chapter, and that he just expressed his delight and joy in the good report brought from him from Timothy in chapter three. All right, so it might be you might feel like, okay, this is enough Thanksgiving, Paul. But he he persists and more Thanksgiving in verse nine. We've seen this already with the prayers that we've looked at from Paul, but we see it here again. And that is just this, the simple fact of the importance of thanksgiving in Paul's prayers. Thanksgiving is a massive part of Paul's prayers. And so just like the, the first prayer we studied, Paul is full of gratitude for what God is doing in the lives of, of the believers. And Carson points out two unique features or two unique characteristics of the thanksgiving found in this text. So the first one, first unique aspect of, of this thanksgiving prayer is that even though the, the thanksgiving is addressed to God, it's said in such a way to encourage the Thessalonians. So the prayer is addressed to God, but it's, he's, he's writing to the Thessalonians. He's writing a report of the prayer, or the actual prayer. And it's said in a way to actually build up their faith, to encourage them. And I think this is a really important skill that, that all Christians can develop, and we kind of need to develop as we think about building up one another in the faith, in, in the church. Specifically, as we think about praying for others publicly. To pray in such a way that builds up other Christians' faith, that, that edifies them. Carson argues it may be best to understand what and, and how Paul is encouraging others in his prayer by looking at some ways not to do this. So the first way not to encourage others is by what Carson calls, I really love his phrases in this book, they're, they're funny, okay. He calls it being a backslapping flatterer, which is not something you want to be, a backslapping flatterer. This is someone who constantly compliments everyone and everything regardless of merit. So in the context of the local church, this type of personality can take on, I think, several different forms, several different modes. But the general characteristic of someone like this is to overly compliment, maybe with good intentions of wanting to be encouraging, but compliment so much that the encouragement actually loses any substance because the, the, the encouragement is without actual warrant in action. Carson writes, the strokes and compliments are so thickly distributed that you wonder if this person is trying to win a popularity contest. There could also, I think, be a more sinister motive at play in someone like this, that they're dishing out right, many unearned compliments to elicit compliments and praises in return. Carson, again here on this type of, of flattering person, what starts off maybe as the gift of encouragement becomes kind of a loud habit, a superficial froth regurgitated, in all directions, without discretion or sincerity. It may make some people feel good. It embarrasses others, but it fosters holiness in no one. So again, really strong words from Carson here against this type of um, backslapping 
flattering, but this is exactly what, what Paul is not doing here. And it's one type of encouragement, again, that we don't see from Paul. The other that he points out is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. And he's touched on this one already in previous chapters. But this is an individual who never doles out praise or encouragement. And it could be because of their belief that all praise and glory is due to God alone. So these individuals who lean this way, I think they start with a good presupposition, a good fundamental truth to have, that anything good we have or anything good that we do ultimately comes from our Father's hand or God's grace working in our lives, God's gracious work in us. But then I think they have a misunderstanding in applying this truth as they don't thank Christians for anything. And I think, I don't know if this is true, but I think there's a lot less of these types of people than the first category, at least in my experience, but they exist. And what they do is come to a wrong conclusion that, that no encouragement should be given to the people of, of God as Carson says, they conclude they should not administer encouragement for those who are merely the secondary mediators of divine grace. Right? Notice that there's no reason to um, thank or encourage the means that God is using. Right? For them, they might as well just praise and thank God, who is the reason for the good in the person in the first place. There is some truth in this, in this thing, but obviously I think living with or serving with someone like this would be a miserable experience, a terrible experience, right? Just think of doing hours and hours and hours of service just to never be thanked at all or encouraged at all. That would not be fun, and I don't think it's healthy. It's, not, it's also not the example that we see from Paul. The example we have from Paul is not like either of these extremes. His testimony over the totality of his letters, including what we see here in 1 Thessalonians 3, is that he encourages Christians by thanking God for the grace in their lives. More precisely, he encourages Christians by telling them that he thanks God for his grace in their lives. So he, he tells them that he's praying that God is working in their lives, and he's thankful for that. And what's so brilliant by Paul here, I mean, this is absolutely brilliant, is that he, he's simultaneously drawing attention to the Thessalonian spiritual growth, to how they're growing in faith, how they're growing in love, which does what? It, in, it encourages them, right? It encourages them, but at the same time, he insists that it's God who's the one who, who's to be thanked for the growth, right? He's praying to God, which inevitably, that will humble them. It will build humility in them. So this encouragement does not, it cannot puff them up in any way, unless they're severely misunderstanding him, they can't, after listening to Paul, smugly pat themselves on the back for their spiritual growth. That's what Carson writes. God and God alone can and should be thanked for the signs of grace that is present in their lives. But, and this is a big but, for the Christian, there's really nothing more encouraging for us than to hear that God is growing us in our lives. That is, that is actually how we get edified. That's how we get built up. That's how we get encouraged as Christians. Especially when it's coming from 
a spiritual leader, like Paul is to them, an apostle to them, the, the one who planted their church. So that is the essence of encouraging news for, for the Christian, that we're growing in the signs of grace in our lives. So I'll pause here for questions. Yeah, I think that's really helpful, and I, I felt the same thing, um, trying to be super precise in language, which is important. Um, but as we study the scriptures, especially the prayers of Paul, we, we kind of get our language and categories expanded, which is really helpful. Anything else? <clears throat> all right, so all of this, I would argue, and Blake's kind of just touching on it, this is extremely practical for the Christian life, and it's really practical in our life together as a congregation. Carson argues that our churches would be transformed if we made Paul's practice in this prayer kind of our practice in our prayers habitually. So if we made it a practice to thank God for others, and then to tell these others what it is about them that we are thanking God for, that's when this, this transformation would, would happen. Carson gives a couple good examples in the book, um, hypothetical ones. And so he says, what if we're to make a habit out of saying, Bob, I thank God for the faithfulness you display in your task as usher. I can't help noticing how you greet everyone by name, even the smallest child, and that you arrive early and go, to, go out of your way to make everyone welcome. I thank God for your ministry. Or, Pat, I constantly thank, for your, thank you for your influence, not only in the nursery, but on the parents who bring their children there. Only heaven will disclose what good God has accomplished through you. So these are obviously hypothetical examples. But I want to encourage us just to think right now and maybe when you go home of real life examples of people in this congregation that are coming to your mind right now that, that serve in ways that encourage you, that, that you do want to praise God for, that, the, that are serving and doing ministry to the members in our congregation. right? And if we develop habits of noticing God's grace and work in our brothers and sisters, then we're one step closer to being able to thank God for them. So we first have to notice um, the ministry and service of our brothers and sisters. And then the next step would be to thank God for them. And then I guess the final step would be telling them that you are thanking God for them and encouraging them in that way. Now this, I think, leads to a big warning for us or a danger of this type of, of prayer life, which is telling others things you're thankful for, or I guess worse would be telling others you thank God for those things, you pr you're praying for those things, but in actual actuality you're, you don't actually pray for those things. Right? That, would be, that would be lying, that's a sin, which is bad. If we tell people that we thank God for something God is doing in their lives, then what is most important is that we actually thank God for those things. So this practice doesn't just become some, I mean, there's a danger that this practice just becomes some kind of religious speech or a religious practice that has no actual bearing on our prayer lives. That's dangerous. That would be very bad, superficial, and not helpful, ultimately. So what we need, I'd say more fundament fundamentally than encouraging others, 
by telling them is actually having prayer lives that are, are cultivating this thankfulness for the people of God. Actually being thankful in our hearts and in our lives for what God is doing for the brothers and sisters in, in the faith around us. That's, that's kind of what is most fundamental in this text. And then a natural result of that prayer life, an overflow out of that prayer life, is we can tell the people of God what we thank Him for, what we're thanking God for. I think it's a much more natural way to think about it. It's much more beneficial, and I think it's actually what Paul's doing here. He's not, Paul does not have some secret agenda that he's trying to, to tell people certain things to manipulate them or to encourage them to get, to get a desired end. That's not how Paul operates. All right, the, the second unique aspect of this prayer of thanksgiving. So we're still under point one, but now we're in sub-point, you could say B, 1B, is that in, in Paul's thanks to God for the, the Thessalonian church, we see in some measure Paul thanks to God for his, his greatest source of joy. We're seeing here one of Paul's greatest sources of joy, which is actually the Thessalonian Christian. So Paul is not saying in, in verse 9 that he, he's only thankful for Thessalonians because of the joy it produces in him. Right? That would, be a, that would center the prayer around Paul's wants, around Paul's felt needs. That is definitely not what Paul is doing. Carson says that would be a, a wretched misreading of Paul. But notice that Paul's speaking in the plural, so it says of him and I think the workers of his ministry but they have joy in the presence of God because of them. That, that language is very important because it signifies in Paul's mind his joy is the kind of joy that can be shared with God in God's presence. So these are the, the events, the things that make God himself joy-filled. So this is actually quite the opposite of any, actually, or any self-serving reason to pray. And Paul's joy for the Thessalonians it, it discloses another aspect of his prayer, which this is really obvious, but it needs to be stated. And that is that Paul doesn't view the signs of grace in their life as some mere um, intellectual or, or analytic observation that, that's kind of devoid of any emotional connection, that's emotionally detached. That's not how Paul's thinking about it, like that they've reached these checklists of spiritual maturity, and so he gives them like, a gold star of, okay, now you've reached this stage of Christian. That's great. No, he's deeply emotionally invested in these people. He has actual joy, exuberant joy, at the reports of their faith. He's genuinely excited because of the faith of these Christians. I think Carson writes really well here. He says, this is the joy of a man who says, in effect, I love you so much that when I see God's grace in your life, I'm utterly elated. Indeed, your spiritual growth affords me so much joy in the presence of God that I'm profoundly indebted to you, and I'm impelled all the more to thank God for you. So this, it's just another reminder that, that Paul's passion for people is real. He has genuine human emotions and affections for Christians, which I think is a great example for us, that this is the Christian life, that we are to love one another with, with, with actual 
emotions and with joy and, and, and passion. He's never viewing these people as a mere professional only or as, as a means to the end of his goal of planting a certain amount of churches. He deeply loves Christians. Now this leads to the, to the second aspect of Paul's prayer that we need to analyze. And that is that Paul prays that he might be able to strengthen these believers. Paul prays that he might be able to strengthen these believers. We see this in verses 10 and 11. So we read, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. I think there's, Carson lays out three details that we can analyze or that we can just pick up from these verses that, that will give us a better understanding of his prayer. First, as Paul claims, he, he prays for the Thessalonians night and day. He prays for the Thessalonians night and day. And this is kind of a common practice for Paul, or type, the type of language Paul uses frequently. Of, of persistent prayer. And I think sometimes it can be confusing for us, but Paul will say things like he always thanks God for people or that he continually thanks God or he, he charges us to pray without ceasing. Right? There's an emphasis here from Paul that, that this should be happening a lot, always, persistently. And the point is, Paul is praying and he's praying a lot. So we see the, the same in, in our text here. He thanks God night and day. Carson argues we should not think about this language as merely hyperbolic, as if Paul is kind of exaggerating in his language to make a rhetorical point, or that he, he's just in something like a spirit of prayer. This is, this is an interpretation some people have. He's always in the spirit of prayer, constantly, but like there's not actual any, any, or there's very rarely just actual prayers being said. He's just always in this prayer mode. It's a, a strange interpretation. I don't think we should think about it that way. Um, so the best way to understand what Paul's saying is that when he prays, this is really simple. I think this is, this is good from Carson. When he prays, which is regularly, he prays often when he prays, day and night, he remembers the Thessalonians in those prayers. So it's not as if he only prays so he doesn't sleep or eat. right? That, that, that wouldn't work for a number of reasons. Namely, he would die. Um, but he does pray. He has structured prayer times throughout the day, throughout his day, in the normal rhythms of his day. He prays frequently. And so this statement, he is making a statement about night and day of the frequency of the prayers that he has for the Thessalonians, which I think provides us two lessons that, that Carson highlights. First is pretty simple. It's important to, to pray frequently. It's important to have stru frequent structured prayer times um, for, for the Christian. We've talked a little bit about this 
um, in the previous lessons. This, this, this can look different during different seasons of life. If you have kids, if you don't have kids, you know, there's just a, a lot of different factors um, on, on the amount of frequency or how it looks in different people's lives, different Christians' lives. But the principle is we should be praying frequently. We should be praying day and night which I think is, is kind of these ideas of a structured prayer time where we're thinking about and, and, and praying intentionally. And the second lesson is the, the importance of remembering the right things to pray for in, during these structured times of prayer, which later chapters are going to deal with this, this second topic. But it's important to just note the obvious. Paul prayed a lot. And if we're looking to this book and we're looking to the scriptures as Paul being a model for our prayer lives, what's the necessary implication of that? Yes, thanks, Mari. Pray a lot. We need to be seeking to pray to pray more. Um, he prayed night and day, and he spent a lot of that structured prayer time. This is really important. He spent a lot of that time praying for other Christians, praying for the churches he planted, praying for the Christians that he knew that their faith would be sustained, that God would, would be near to them. Again, I think that should motivate us to, to not only have, our, have structured frequent prayer times, but that our, our prayers should include time to be praying for others, other Christians. Most importantly, the Christians in this room, the Christians in this, this congregation that God has placed us in, in covenant together. Second detail Carson points out from these verses is that the goal of Paul's prayer and his remembrance of them and his prayers is that he might see them again and for him to be the one to supply what is lacking in their faith. So the goal of his prayer is for, the, for, for Paul to see the Thessalonians and for him and his workers to be the ones to supply what is lacking in their faith. Which, if you think about it, that is a very bold prayer from Paul. But it's important to note what, what the Thessalonians were lacking, which was, was knowledge of the faith. It was not, it's important to note, it's not because of any rebellion in them. It's, it's simply because of ignorance, which makes sense as we think of the, the context of the letter. If we remember that Paul was with this church a very short amount of time, and he didn't have the opportunity to opportunity to establish them fully in the scriptures and what they needed to know. And so he's expressing his longing to see them again for the purpose of, of his strengthening of their faith. Now what, this, what makes this prayer remarkable, and I, I would argue very bold, is that, he's not on, that it not only sheds light on what Paul thinks is important, but it also sheds light on his commitment for the brothers and sisters. And it also shows us how, how Paul mingles intercessory prayer with his own service. This is another really important skill to develop in our prayer lives, to, to learn how to mingle our prayers for others with our own service to others. He, so, so a way to think about this, he doesn't leave the means of the Thessalonian spiritual growth unstated. So he doesn't just say generally, God, grow the Thessalonians spiritually, the end period. 
right? He, what, he, what he does is he prays that he himself might be the one to strengthen these Christians, that God would send him there to, to, to serve them, to strengthen them, to teach them. I think we need to be careful as we apply a verse like this, because Paul is a capital A apostle, so he has a unique authority in the history of the church that you and I do not have. So he had an authority over the Thessalonians that makes his type of request make makes a lot of sense, right? He is really the only one or one of a few who could provide the foundation of knowledge and faith that Thessalonians need. Right? They didn't have the, the, the canonized scriptures as, at the time. Paul was writing them the scriptures. He was teaching them the foundation that they needed to know. So this is kind of a unique time in salvation history. But having said that, I do think it's appropriate and good that we too ask God to use us in various ways of service and in various ministries to, to help other Christians grow. And I think we can do this specifically, like, like thinking of the ways God has gifted us and thinking people that God has brought in our lives and putting those two things together in our prayers. God, use the way you've gifted me through the Spirit to help member X. I think that's a really healthy practice that we can learn from this. The way Carson articulates this is to say, for Paul, prayer is not a substitute for Christian service, meaning prayer is not the thing we check off on our checklist when we think about serving or ministering to others. Rather, Paul views prayer as a part of Christian service meaning he prays that he would be of service to other Christians. And again, I do think it's appropriate that we would have a similar mindset among, among us as, as Christians. As we think about the category of praying for others, again, specifically thinking about praying for other Christians, we should be praying that God would use us, that God would use us in the way he has gifted us in the growth of other people, and the spiritual growth of other people, and the edification of other Christians. And this doesn't have to be like it is, like it was for Paul, teaching a church plant, a cross-cultural church plant, the foundational aspects of the gospel, the foundational aspects, or the foundational truths of Scripture that they need to know to be a flourishing church. Right? That's very few Christians calling. But I, I appreciate what Carson, Carson does in this section because he highlights what appears to be, to us, probably mundane things, mundane Christian ministry, things like writing a letter to a suffering saint or, or taking a widow out for coffee. So this is, these are things that you don't even have to be particularly gifted to do, but just things that are, take effort and obedience that any of us could do. Starting an evangelistic Bible study in your neighborhood is another one he highlights. And, and the lesson from this verse is that we should be praying that those plans of service, those, those plans of ministry that, that we have as Christians, we, we should be praying that they would be fruitful. And I think we can be as bold as Paul, in a sense, and ask God that he would use us to be the means of growth in other Christians through our service. That was good. Anything else? The third thing Carson points out from, from these verses 
is just to note that, that Paul is aware of the factors that prevent him from serving as he would like, and that his awareness of this prevention, so the, his desire is for him to see the Thessalonians. He wants to see them badly to, to, to make sure they're doing okay. His awareness of that not happening doesn't stop him from praying for them. So we know from, from 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Satan blocked Paul's way from seeing the Thessalonians. We don't know exactly what that actually looked like, but it meant Paul didn't get what he desired. Paul didn't get what, what his plan was to see them. So, so Paul prays to God that he would clear a way for him to come see them. The lesson Carson's pointing out here is that when our plans in ministry, when our plans in the Christian life, when our plans of Christian service, when they don't come to fruition, there is a tendency to become discouraged and maybe even apathetic, which leads to an inaction or an inactivity of prayer. I think we can be encouraged by Paul to see a guy, a man, who had plans of ministry that didn't always work out to the way he wanted it to, and yet he did not um, view those discouragements as debilitating. Right? They actually fueled his, his prayers. It led to more praying for the Thessalonians. So the principle here, we can't let failure of our plans lead to a lack of prayer. It should, in fact, I would argue, lead for us to pray more, to pray more for the others that, that we're trying to, to serve. All right, third main point. Got two more main points to go. The third main point of these verses, and Carson highlights it shifts to the content of the request of Paul for the Thessalonians. And there's a lot of overlap here with this point and the next point of what we've already covered in chapter 2 of the book, or, or chapter 3. So we won't spend a ton of time here, because the content is actually like strikingly similar, which we're going to see throughout this book. He, he really prays for similar things for all Christians, which is helpful, because it helps us know what we should be praying but what we see in the content of the prayers is that Paul prays that there would be an overflow of love among the believers. See this in 3.12. It reads, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So he's talking about love increasing, which is um, kind of a strange way to think about it, but he's not talking about it in like a st numerical or something that could be measured with statistics. Um, that's kind of what my mind goes to when I think of increase. Rather, he's talking about it, uh, love increasing in, in the spirit or, or the strength of heart or, or strength or heart. It's a change in disposition towards each other that the Thessalonians would have for each other, a, a change of heart, a, a growth in disposition for other people, for other Christians. And Carson comments a couple of things about this. First, is given the context about the limited teachings that we've been talking about that the Thessalonians got because he's, he was only there a few weeks, it's striking that this is the topic that he's praying for. Love for one another would be, would be sort of the burden of Paul's prayers. He does not restrict his prayer only to doc, doctrinal considerations, something like praying that the Thessalonians would understand some key core um, 
theological truths, although that would be a very good thing to pray for. But he doesn't highlight that. His, he's first and foremost prays that, that their love might increase for each other, that their love might overflow for one another. And the second thing Carson points out is just how countercultural this is in the Thessalonian context. Carson argues that the Greco-Roman society was very hierarchical. There's kind of a, a social contract between um, certain portions of society and the benefactors of society and everyone else. And so relationships were really based on these customs. So it would be very hard to be friends and to love or to sacrificially love genuinely someone that is uh, a benefactor to you. This, this person might dispense food, money, or resources, housing. In return, there was a demand of loyalty to that person. So the normal people of society were incentivized to show affection and loyalty for these benefactors for, for kind of monetary reasons. For Paul, and the Bible in general, this type of system, this type of uh, societal system, has really no place in the church. It has no place in, in Christ's church. He prays that Christians' love for each other will overflow, will be um, increased for each other. That's essentially what the Christian communities will be marked by, a self-sacrifice from the top of society to the bottom of society, bottom of society to the top of society, Right? This is a, a very countercultural thing to be arguing from, from Paul. And as we've already seen, and we'll see again in later chapters, Paul over and over again returns to this petition. He returns that, that, that the Christian's love will be growing, that it'll be overflowing for one another. And I think that's probably because Paul is very realistic about sin and the effects of sin in the body of Christ, where resentment, where hostility where division can grow rampant. And Paul understands this, and, and, and we know from the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of history, maybe the testimony of our own lives, that Satan loves to divide the people of God. He loves to build resentment of the fellowship of the people of God. So Paul prays often, I think, to combat this type of tendency in us, that our love would be increasing, that our love would be overflowing. Final point that Carson makes on this prayer is that these believers will be so strengthened in heart that they will be blameless and holy when the end comes. See, this comes from verse 13, that he may establish your hearts blameless and holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So he may establish your hearts. The heart, you probably know this, it's a very important word and concept in the scriptures. It's really the center of, of everything we are as people. It's not talking kind of how we think of it as the center of our emotions. In the scriptures, it's, it's kind of the center of our personality, the intellect. It is talking about our emotions, but, but kind of deeper than that. Our motives are, are what we're devoted to. Heart, the heart is referring to all of that, so essentially all that makes us who we are. So Paul is praying that the Thessalonians' heart, their, their devotion 
who we are would be strengthened, that our allegiance to Christ would be enlarged and strengthened. And the result of this strengthening is that we will not need to fear the day of the Lord, which is an astonishing claim. The day of the Lord refers to, to the judgment day at the end of history. And we won't need to fear because we will be blameless in holiness before God. We will be righteous before God. We'll be completely holy in God's presence when He comes to judge the living and the dead. Again, an astonishing truth of the hope of the gospel for, of, of the future for believers in Christ because of our union with Christ. And Paul's praying that this would happen for the Thessalonians. And this is, I think, we're about to, to end here, but this is really important just to note that Paul prays these things in light of the end of history. We've already seen Paul pray like this before in, in previous chapter, but Paul constantly prays with this eternal mindset. So as we conclude thinking about praying for others, as we've been thinking the past two weeks, we, we really need to remember, like Paul does, that all of us, we're all headed to that final day. That's where all of history is headed towards. And there's nothing more important than our standing before God on that day. That's why Paul constantly reiterates it. That's why he's constantly praying about it. That's why he's constantly teaching about it. Because it's massively important. So when we pray for others, we must pray with eternity's values in mind. That's how Carson puts it. With an eternal perspective. Carson writes, there's no prayer we can pray for others more fundamental than this, that God might strengthen their hearts so that they will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father on the last day. I think that's a, a really good word to end on and a, a good reminder for, for what what is actually the most important thing for us to be praying for? This is not to neglect any um, earthly thing or provision or all of the things that, other things that we're commanded to pray for. Um, but I do think it gives us an idea as we focus on what Paul thinks values as important. It helps us recognize that the end of times, the, the end of history, that the coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead, that is the ultimate deciding factor. That is the most important thing, event in human history that we're all going towards. So we need to pray for others in light of that. Pause here. Any final questions, comments, concerns? All right, next time we're going to hopefully get into chapter 6 and analyze a prayer from Paul in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. You can read Colossians 1, 9 through 14 this week. Um, read the chapter of the book, and we will see you then. You're dismissed.